You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Okay, if you have not heard about Cash App, you're going to love me. You want more from all these free apps used for just free and fast money transfers, right? Well, I've got the hookup for you. The Cash App. The Cash App card is a free Visa debit card that lets you use your Cash App balance to pay online and in stores. It's also the only way to get Boost. Now, let me tell you about Boost because it's exclusive to Cash App. Boosts are reusable instant discounts that work at places you actually go to, everywhere from Starbucks to Walmart to even the PlayStation Network store. You can do so much more than buy and save money with this. You can even purchase shares of stock in companies you love by investing as little as $1. Banking is also made easy. With Cash App, you can directly deposit paychecks, tax returns, and more to your Cash App balance using the unique account and routing numbers. And if you don't think things can get any cooler, it does by allowing you to buy and sell Bitcoin, the money of the future. Selling and receiving money on Cash App is as easy as entering a phone number, using another user's name, or simply scanning a QR code. Hit the special link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. That is, use that link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. So go on, go ahead and hit that link in the show notes and get set up with Cash App today. Whether you're looking for a comedic retelling of the history of the modern libertarian movement or a dark comedy about the seedy world of American politics, my books, Stay Away from the Libertarians, as well as How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, have been entertaining thousands of readers throughout the world since 2018. Whether you're looking for the next great book on your reading list or considering a funny and captivating book for the politico or history nut in your life, you can grab a copy of either Stay Away from the Libertarians or How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship today on either Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. Amazon links for the print and ebook editions of both books are available in the show notes. Hey folks, on today's episode, we have Jeffrey Wernick. He was one of the earliest investors in Bitcoin, and he's going to talk to us about the current state of our monetary system, what you need to know about you know, Bitcoin and hard money, sound money itself, and the things that are going to affect you in your daily life in terms of how your dollar matches with what's going on in the world. It was an awesome awesome episode. It was like listening to an economic masterclass by somebody that's been through the thick of it all. And, you know, this is great. And if you want to go ahead and, you know, maybe check out more of his past presentations, maybe find him on Parlor. I'll go ahead and link to all of that in the show notes of today's episode. So I'll shut up now. We'll get on with the show and enjoy. All right, sir. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a beautiful time to be alive because everyone's at home. Everyone has a little extra time on their hands. And thanks to Zoom, we can get conversations like this going. So thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Not a problem. So I I have to ask, you were an early investor in Bitcoin almost a decade ago. Right now, what we're seeing is massive printing of money on a scale that is just dumbfounding to anyone that understands how our monetary system works. We have thousands, if not millions of Americans who were, you know, freaking out because they didn't have at least $1,000 in savings. And now we're fighting over how much more we should get from possible stimulus checks. And it seems that right now what we're seeing is a massive hollowing out 
of small businesses across the country. And I predict that after this, if you're jobless, your only future is going to be either working for a corporation or going and trying to find a government job. So I've got to ask, did you see this coming in one way or another? Is this the, hey, I told you guys you should have gotten into Bitcoin and tried to take a valuation of your financial health years ago type of moment? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I've been a hard person. I've been a hard money person basically my entire life. Um, so, uh, I became, uh, suspicious of, uh, fiat money, uh, young. And my first big trade was when I was 15 years old. And, uh, that was in 1971. And when Nixon removed us on Bretton Woods, uh, I bought a, a gold stock. Uh, I had uh, $5,000. Um, my uncle taught me how to buy that stock on margin. Uh, so, uh, I made a $10,000 bet. And by the time I was, uh, 18 and as a student at the university of Chicago, I was, uh, I already had more than $200,000 in the bank that started with that $5,000 just betting on gold. And this was, so I was at Chicago in the mid seventies. Uh, when we had uh, gold go from 3500 to over 600 from $35, I mean, to over 600 Oh, gotcha. Uh, when we saw the big increase in oil prices, um, we saw the long bond. When the long bond futures contract came out, the coupon was 8%. Um, it, it, the first day it closed under par, and I don't think it got back to par until like 15 years later. So uh, when I went to Chicago... I took my uh, $200,000, $200,000 plus, and I basically were, I was long commodities and short and short fixed income securities. And I was just betting on the debasement of money. So betting on the debasement of money has been a pretty good bet. You know, during my, during my investing lifetimes, there's only two times I didn't bet on the debasement of money. Uh, that was when Reagan was president. Uh, and then again, when, uh, Clinton was president and the, up until the recent stock market rally that we had, you know, in the beginning of the Trump administration and the latter part of the Obama administration, you know, our strongest stock market rallies previous to that were occurred when we had a strengthening dollar. Uh, and I measure strengthening dollar, not this of the other fiat money, but relative to gold. So, uh, you know, over most of the period that since we've uh, abandoned Bretton Woods, uh, the gold has significantly outperformed the dollar. And there's only basically two periods of time in which there was significant outperformance of the dollar vis-a-vis gold. Uh, and the strongest period of time of the dollar was during the, uh, the Reagan administration up, up, up until the Plaza Accord. And then again, during the, uh, the, the Clinton administration. Uh, the dollar is weaker relative to gold during the Trump administration. So, you know, I view as you know as as the you know the uh, the most widely distributed uh, sound money is gold. Uh, but I believe Bitcoin has better attributes than gold. So, as someone who was accumulating gold for a long time, uh, once Bitcoin came out, it was clear to me that Bitcoin had better attributes than gold. And the better attributes than gold, in my opinion, are it's more portable, uh, it's cheaper and easier to store, and it's more difficult to confiscate, and it's easier to divide into smaller units. So that makes it, uh, you know, with gold, you know, if you want to accumulate large quantities, storing it is a problem. 
Many people, that's why people revert to gold receipts, uh, that the gold has to be stored somewhere. And uh, wherever it's stored, uh, it makes it you know easier to confiscate. Um, and if you're going to use it, uh, you'd have to basically convert it into like a gold certificate that people would exchange amongst themselves, uh, as opposed to just having a digital wallet uh, in your on your phone uh, or, or or a hard wallet. And how easy it is to move Bitcoin, how easy it is to move really small units of Bitcoin, uh, and it would be more expensive to you to move small units of gold. So, because it's more difficult to confiscate, um, uh, and um, and it's easier and cheaper to hold, uh, less likely to be expropriated and more divisible. Bitcoin, to me, had attributes much better than gold. So, since Bitcoin came out, I've made accumulating Bitcoin my priority over accumulating gold. And yes, it's an, it's 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 a uh, it's uh, inevitable the circumstances that we're having. Uh, the virus has exposed the fragility of a financial system. Uh, it, the fragility pre-existed uh, this, 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 this virus. Uh, you saw basically almost immediately people were asking for bailouts uh, because there was so much financial fragility. And there's a very good reason why there's no savings. There's no savings because the government punishes savings. You know, how does the government punish savings? It punishes savings by the fact that unless you want to be a stock market speculator, that there's a negative return to savings. So the government has pushed interest rates down so long to, to encourage consumption. What the government is doing is it's subsidizing consumption and penalizing savings for the typical individual. So we've had, so, so we've had consumer balance sheets be highly levered which meant that we have to support asset prices if not they're bankrupt. So, because basically the whole point of savings is if I put my money somewhere, by not spending it today, I increase my purchasing power in the future. If I give my money to a bank and a savings deposit, uh, which for many years had been the traditional form of savings as people would buy time deposits and savings deposits, you know, and fixed income securities, you know, that, you know, AAA fixed income securities, uh, you know, that, that the interest rate would cover inflation, provide a real return, and there would be what would call the power of compound interest. So, in fact, now how most people became millionaires, like in the 50s and 60s, uh, was basically not an entrepreneur who started a business who became, you know, very, very wealthy. It was a professional who saved 10 to 20 percent of their salary. You know, we had zero. We had zero inflation. They had a 3% interest rate. They were earning 3% real returns every year. Sometimes four, they bought a little more credit risk or 5%. And that compound interest of saving, of having a, a middle-class income, saving a good percentage of middle-class income, and that would convert them into, into millionaires over a period of time. So they weren't, they, they, they didn't get a new car every two or three years. They got a new car every five to seven years. So they didn't, they didn't, they, they, they preferred saving to consumption because by saving, they would be able to consume a lot more later, later on. You know, now we have all the different types of incentives. And the fact is that if I save almost anywhere other than speculating stocks, you know, I have an, I have a negative return on money. Uh, so that basically if I save, I'm just saving through the act of saving. So I'm making myself poorer because I'm reducing my future purchasing power through savings. 
So, and the whole point is to increase money. Instead, what we get the government is they give you tax benefits to not only, they punish you if you save, because that interest income, even if in, in real terms it's negative, in nominal terms it's positive, and so that income income is taxable. So the government is taxing you on the based value of money. So they're taking money where your purchasing power is reduced and having you pay taxes on having your purchasing power reduced. So it's really very, very perverse policy. And uh, so the government has wanted is just to push consumption. So we got all this, we got since this Keynesian mentality of, you know, and, 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 and we have a distortion of Keynesian mentality because Keynes never said deficits should be permanent. So government investment projects should only occur when we had deep, deep recessions and what he called liquidity traps. So Keynes never advocated huge government spending programs during what we called economic recovery. So he didn't, he didn't, he didn't advocate huge trillion-dollar budget deficits during what was described as, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to be offensive to our president, but it's, it's, it's hard to sit back and describe, you know, the economy being the greatest economy ever in the history of mankind while we're running a trillion-dollar deficit. A trillion-dollar deficit, you know, if the economy is that great, it doesn't require fiscal stimulus. So I, I have a quick stimulus, question about that. It's because the economy is not that great. Yeah, okay. I, I have a quick question about that. I I consider myself somebody who is a bit more favorable towards the president, but the one thing that's always bothered me is that I can't necessarily put my finger on where his thought process comes in terms of how we handle our money, because he was one of the few Republicans running in 2016 that actually you know, publicly said, I like to print money. If we need to go ahead and get ourselves out of a quick bind, we'll just go ahead and print our way through it. But at the same time, he's also more of a free marketeer than what we saw in the last several administrations. What do you think is his mentality towards money in our monetary system? I think that uh, I don't like really getting too much in somebody's head because mm-hmm. uh, it's speculation that I'm likely to be wrong about. But uh, I think you know the uh, it's what's human nature is to refer to the metric that makes you look best and emphasize whatever metric makes makes you look best. So the matrix that made uh, the Trump administration look most successful was the stock market. So I think they became obsessive about the stock market as a metric of the wealth of the nation. Uh, and what was keeping the stock market up was the Fed. Um, so uh, if you look at like national income accounts uh, the, of the S&P 500, uh, the earnings of the S&P 500 have been flat five or six years. So if the stocks are going up, you could say the stocks are going up because um, because there's an expectation of future earnings growth, which is a good thing, or stocks are going up because people are paying a higher price for the same dollar of earning. So then the question is, is that a good thing if we're overpaying now for earnings? And why would we overpay for earnings? Well, we might overpay for earnings is because we think we have a Fed that's going to guarantee losses. That don't worry, once the stock market sells off, the Fed will come in and rescue everyone. So is that is that efficient of you know what, what economists call you know a, you know a moral hazard problem? Is that the Fed has created this terrible moral hazard problem? Is that people will buy stocks sort of indiscriminately, not because you know they're pricing you know the, the value of the balance sheet, but they're fa- the value of you know the Fed coming in and doing anything to push prices up. So um, 
you know, so that's that's kind of perverse. And it's perverse in many ways because it also penalizes new companies and benefits incumbent firms. So if I'm a new company, you know, I'm not the one that the Fed is going to provide liquidity for, you know, so there's a there's a significant cost to capital disadvantage. So the unusual thing about this this recovery versus previous recoveries is usually previous recoveries, what we see is what leads it is entrepreneurs. We get a lot of new business formation. And now we've not had much new business formation. Uh, I think we still have, I haven't checked the most recent statistics. I, I haven't checked in the beginning of the Trump years. I knew throughout the Obama years, when supposedly the, re- the recovery occurred, um, that net new business formation was still declining. So more businesses were still shutting down than, than being formed. So we had never seen a recovery. What is we had never seen a recovery where we didn't have a quarter, you know, or a year where the where the growth where the economy didn't grow uh, over four percent. So our growth has been very very mediocre. Uh, productivity growth has been very low. Uh, so this is kind of an unusual recovery where there's very limited productivity growth, uh, not a lot of new job. Not a lot of new jobs. We've had we've had basically more people exit the labor force than enter the labor force for a long period of time. Um, so uh, I think that the metric that looked the best of all the metrics was the stock market. So you go with the metric that looked the best. I think where Trump stood on money has been an enigma to many, because he had also said in an interview that uh, that what that what what made America great was its what what is linkage of dollar to gold. So Trump has made some statements as an advocate of someone who advocated sound money, hard money, and gold, you know, and 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 at that point in time, uh, which even though he has nominated now, uh, he, had, he had appointed to conversations with people like Judy Shelton, who ran the sound money project, only, only it sounds like uh, Judy Shelton no longer believes in the sound money project anymore. So uh, she believes in the free money project, not the sound money project. The cheap money project, not the sound money project. So I think that the you know the, the 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 metric that made Trump look the best, the one that he referred to constantly, was the stock market. You know, and what's driven the stock market is you know is basically all the liquidity uh, provided, and almost all of it has come from uh, the returns have been the companies have basically been borrowing a lot of money uh, to do stock buybacks and paying back a lot of dividends. Because the incentives of the corporate management is not necessarily to make increased productivity. It's to get the stock price up because that's what earns them the options. That's what we're telling management. Every time a board of directors gets a company and says, well, the only thing, the, the only metric we really care about is the stock price. So the management does whatever they can do to get the stock price up. And so, uh, you know, for some companies, that means they invest like Amazon invests a lot of cash flows for a lot of companies. It's just a matter of I'm, I'm not in a business where people think will grow a lot. You know, so the question is, is I got to just keep buying back my stock because I don't have anything good to do with my cash other than buy back my stock. So, but what we've done is made balance sheets more fragile. Uh, I think, you know, prior to going into this recession, we had the lowest percentage of companies of, you know, if you look at the total amount of, of, of debt outstanding, debt issuance is outstanding. How many of them were A-rated and, 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 and above was the lowest that we've had in a long, long time. So uh, we've made the quality of debt uh, significantly worse by companies just leveraging up, leveraging up, and leveraging up. And they've levered up because that's the, that's the incentives 
that the free money has provided. If you're big, you have a very low cost of capital, and the, and and if you think about what your stock price is, it's the discounted you know it's a discounted present value of cash flows. So if my cash flow stays the same, but my discount rate <coughs> gets lower, then the present value goes up. So if I can't increase my income, as long as my cost of capital goes down, my stock price goes up. So what we what has been driving stock price increases has not been better operations, has not been better, more cash flows. It's been financial engineering. So the returns are how well can I financially engineer my balance sheet to lower my cost of capital as much as possible. So the fact that everybody has basically had pretty much the same incentives is I really can't, you know, consumers are kind of tapped out except for the really wealthy. You know, they've borrowed as much as they can borrow. Um, So all I need to really focus in on is how do I, you know, how do I lower my cost of capital? So they're all focusing on how to manage the lower cost of capital. So they get the stock price up and making the balance sheet more fragile has lowered their cost of capital. And if I have, if I don't have any equity in a business and I have all debt and I can borrow all that debt at, you know, at 1% interest, my cost of capital is 1%. It's very, very low. Uh, But if any, but if just the smallest thing goes wrong, I'm bankrupt. So the capital is the cushion against, against the downturn. So the whole economy had no cushion against the downturn because they stripped all the companies. All the companies have stripped themselves of cash. So nobody has, it's not just that consumers don't have rainy day savings. Companies don't have rainy day savings. Companies did not price their balance sheets in, you know, to, to the fact that, you know, if you ask what would happen if there was a bad recession, you know, it was it was sort of like the uh, what we saw in the um, the housing bubble. You know, where basically uh, people were buying houses with uh, with no money down, uh, and the expectations were housing house prices would never go down. And then you ask the question: Is what happens if house prices do go down? Well, we saw what happens when house prices do go down. So now the question was: Some people said, "Well, maybe we've outlawed the business cycle. We'll never have a period of a quarter of negative GDP." So the balance sheets is all reflected a financial structure that could not absorb a recession. So uh, it didn't take us a long period of time to be in a recession for the balance sheets to become as bad, as deteriorated as bad as they were, because they had no incentive to do anything other than you know strip out its cash flows and pay it, pay it. Because if not, they wouldn't have gotten the stock prices up, and that's what the shareholders told them they wanted them to do because that's what got them the rewards. The rewards in their compensation were not linked to return on assets, return on equity, no other metric other than get the stock price up and we'll share the benefits with you. So, and the government, and they have strong lobbying lobbying power, so they use that lobbying power to help them get rules that would make it facilitate them making their balance sheets more fragile, more vulnerable to a downturn. But in return, they could get the stock prices up and they would all have the same systemic problem of being overleveraged. And because it would be a systemic problem, that would be an argument for the Fed to come in and solve the problem. So, uh, you know, so it, 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 became, a, it, it became a whole um, bad institutional design uh, that reinforced the worst behavior in everyone. So, yeah, I saw this. I saw this. I just I never knew when it would happen. 
I just knew one thing would one thing that would cause a recession. I never knew what it was. And then once we had a recession, it would expose all the flaws in our system. And so I, I had zero doubt about that. And uh, so, uh, you know, here, I, I've been someone who's kind of kept a very low profile. Um, uh, actually, you know, the first time I, 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 I gave a talk here, I, it was just because I had a friend uh, who had been bagged, you know, uh, nagging me for years to talk about Bitcoin publicly, and I always refused. Uh, but because uh, she saw me in talks I gave in China, uh, that she asked me to give a talk about Bitcoin here. And it's kind of sad in a sense to me is because here people trusted the Fed. You know, when I gave my talks on Bitcoin, the few that were that circulated a couple of years ago, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people bought Bitcoin and there were other people also talking about it. I can tell you that in my talks that I gave, like, for example, in China, uh, there are several thousands of people without exaggeration that became millionaires in Bitcoin because of being exposed to Bitcoin, you know, from me. So I, I, I started speaking about Bitcoin in Japan, I mean, China, about five years ago. Uh, Bitcoin was like $300 at the time, $200 oh, wow. at the time. And I can tell you, uh, most of the people who uh, I gave talks to uh, ended up buying Bitcoin. And a few years later, you know, many became millionaires. I mean, several thousands of people became became millionaires. I, I did a, uh, a live, I, I did one live streaming only in, in, in China. Uh, about uh, three, four years ago. And uh, I was told like uh, 10 million people watched it live. Um, so uh, there, they didn't trust their currency. So because I was speaking to an audience that didn't trust their currency, they were very interested in alternatives. And uh, they're, they're, they have a mentality that they don't trust currency and they don't trust their government. So they look, they're always looking for ways to protect themselves from a system and a government that they don't really trust. So, so they're very open to new ideas because, because they didn't trust their money, they don't trust their government. And so they're looking for ways of surviving and looking into figuring how they can arbitrage you know, a government that they find uh, sort of oppressive to them. Here, here, the worst thing that happened for many people is they trusted their government. So, they haven't looked at alternatives as a store of value because there's such there's such a level of trust which makes the, which makes the abuse of that trust even worse because you know that the people you're talking to really do trust you. So and you know in, in China the, the government knows the people don't trust, them. so they know it. So you know the, the people the Chinese people don't trust their government. So uh, and the Chinese government knows the people don't trust their government here. People know that, on the most part, many people have a reasonable level of trust for their government. I, I can tell you, you know, just to kind of like illustrate this point, um, I was, um, I was, I was, I was, I was leaving. I was leaving New York years ago. I had a subway token, and so I, you know, I, I was running to the airport. I had a whole bunch of subway tokens, and I wasn't going to be back in New York for a while. So I was, I went to the people online. I said, I'm, "I'll sell you tokens." Uh, you know, at 75% of the value that you can get them 
you know, right at the, uh, right at the, you know, right at the window that you're buying them for. Nobody wanted to buy. So then I went to the person who was selling behind the window. I said, can you tell them that what I'm doing is legal? And so she announced, yes, what he's doing is legal. So as soon as everyone was told it was legal, then they all came to buy my tokens. For me. They really trusted the system. So the system was maybe it's illegal to buy the token at a discount from this guy. So I'm going to wait online to buy it at a full price when I could go have no line, go right up to this guy and buy it at a 25% discount. I'm still going to wait on the line because I think that maybe because I have so much trust, you know, for the system. So to the extent oh, that wow. we kind of know that people have such a huge trust in the system, the last thing you want to do as a fiduciary is, is, is abuse that trust of the system. So China, the people don't trust their system. So it was, you know, and, 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 and really, I didn't go around to speak about Bitcoin. I just happened to meet a guy um, at a dinner doing due diligence on a deal that I was looking at, um, a tech deal. And there was some Chinese in the room and uh, it was in San Francisco. And then one of them came to me and started asking me some questions about myself and asked, what, is, what, do, you rec- what do I recommend that he buy? And I said, nothing here that we're listening to today. I said, I'm gonna, I'll just said, I'll just give you one tip, buy Bitcoin. And he knew nothing about Bitcoin. So he said, can you tell me about Bitcoin? Uh, and uh, so I told him about Bitcoin. He just happened to be uh, the uh, first person under 30 to become a billionaire in China. So uh, he was like a billionaire at 25, 26 years old. Wow. So, so he said, I got to bring you to China and I, I want you to meet a lot of people. So I went to China with him and he would bring me to all these dinners. And he said, you got to talk to people about Austrian economics, you know, talk about Hayek, you know, and talk about Bitcoin. So he would take, so I went through different cities with him and he would just get groups of people together. Many of them were government people. Many of them were just very wealthy entrepreneurs. You know, I met a lot of billionaires while I was there. Um, and, and I met a lot of young people. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they just all started buying, uh, you know, started, started buying Bitcoin because, uh, they, you know, whatever explanations I made, they found compelling. So here Americans didn't find it so compelling because we trust the dollar. We trust our government. We trust the system. And, uh, I'm hoping that the one good thing that comes out of, out of this is that we learn to have distrust and a healthy distrust for the concept of trusted third parties. We should, you know, that that to me is, we need a revolution in trust. We need to wake up and say, how we intermediate trust to society just hasn't worked. If we take a look at, like, um, uh, you know, if we take a look at between what's going on with, uh, you know, with Flynn and Trump and all these investigations, you know, what we, what we get a sense is we're not sure of the legality or illegality of some of these issues because those are technical points. What, we all, what most people agree on, it's very unjust. It, it's know, an so, unequal distribution of the law. Yes. So I, I, I like to refer to it as, a, as, a, as not prosecution of the law, but persecution by law. So, so I think we see a persecution because of the prosecutorial discretion. Uh, you know that there's a persecution of law, and we're getting we're getting a window into the tactics of the FBI when the FBI thinks that they have, and other organizations 
which is somebody human nature is once you kind of think somebody's guilty, the question is, what do you do to prove that guilt? If that's kind of what your inclination is that you think they're guilty, all the things you're prepared to do to prove something that you think is probably true. Uh, so that is what makes it a persecution. It's a persecution because you're just not following the evidence. You see a limited piece of circumstantial evidence. You draw a conclusion from it, and then you back into trying to prove the situation. So we find is for most trust. So we find is you really can't trust trusted third parties to tell you everything you need to know. They they all they all are spinning, you know, and they are all abusing power to the extent that they think is necessary for them to sustain their power. So I think I'm hoping that one day we wake up and we engage in a trust revolution because if we kind of think about the initial system of design that we had as the founders talked about it, it was extreme distrust. So they kept on trying to have a system of having checks and balances, not that anyone would have total authority or some authority. It was to check authority because the because we believed that any authority of the founders, if people had any authority, it would tend to be abused. So the question is to have it distributed as broadly and decentralized as broadly as possible, which makes it messier, uh, but it, it, it makes it more difficult to do harm. So the expectation was that if you give authority, they're more likely to do harm than good. So it's rather, it's, so if you have to figure out, you know, the type of statistics between like type one errors and type two errors, you know, false positive and, and false negatives, you know, we'd rather have people do too little than too much. You know, too little might mean we might have the opportunity, of course, of some good being done. But the probability is that if they're going to do something, it's more likely to harm than do good. So if the probability it'll cause more harm than good, the best thing to do is as little as possible. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that through this crisis, we're going to sit back and say we've had a systemic institutional failure that shouldn't be attributed to any one individual. You know, so I don't view this as Trump failed us or Democrats failed us or whatever. It's a systemic failure. You know, it's a systemic failure for a long period of time. And really, the people who failed us are ourselves, ourselves for delegating so much power and authority to people who forgot Ben Franklin's words when he was asked what form of government, you know, did they give us? And they gave us a republic if we could keep it. It's our responsibility to keep it. So when people sit back and, and this is this is no criticism of Trump, this is more criticism of his supporters. You know, when somebody says, you know, Trump's our savior, Trump's our savior, our institutional design was not for us to have a savior. Our institutional desire is that the power resides with us. So not in not in the requirement of there being any savior. If you require a savior, that's a fragile system. If your whole system depends upon you know, I, you know, when people would ask me, when I would, when I would give talks, you know, especially like in China, they would say, what, what do you think the greatness of the United States is? I said, let me tell you what the greatness of the United States is. We're the strongest power in the world, even though for 200 years we've had shitty presidents, shitty governors, shitty mayors, okay, shitty senators, and shitty representatives. So, because ultimately what makes us strong is our institutions, economic freedom, and rule of law. So that our infrastructure is so strong that we can have shitty people and prosper in a system where everyone we elected was a piece of shit. So <laughs> that's the greatness of our country. Okay. So, so we, we, we're great no matter what piece of shit we put at the White House. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not calling Trump a piece of shit. I'm just making it as a generic term. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, and that's the greatness of our system. Our system is so great that it's supposed to survive making any mistake in who we elect. Okay. So that, so our, the strength of our nation, the success of our nation should not be so dependent upon the selection of any one individual. If that's the case, one is that's not consistent with what the founders meant in their design. They even talked about whether there should even be a president, you know, so, you know, so they were on the most part against any presidents, you know, and, and when Washington rejected the concept of any sort of imperial, imperial presidency. So he, he hung out with everybody. You could walk into the White House, shake his hand. There was no ceremony associated, you know, with being with him. There was no ceremony associated with, you know, being in the office. You know, the White House initially was a piece of shit building. So, uh, you know, there was very little staff. They had no money. Uh, you know, so it's it's unfortunate how people have no sense of history and and don't read, uh, you know, our founding documents to get any appreciation of really the principles that this nation was founded on. It was founded upon not re- that really we relied on ourselves. We didn't rely on government. We this is as I like to say is we're not a sovereign nation. We were designed as a nation of sovereign individuals. So sovereignty resides in us. So it's our job, it's our responsibility to make the light, our lives best for ourselves. So, and the other thing the founding fathers didn't all said, even the, even the Hamiltonians on Hamilton himself, is no one ever trusted the government with the printing press. They said, once you give the government the printing press, you have tyranny. So we have tyranny today. You know, if, if I'm sure, you know, I, I, I mean, I would bet that if Thomas Jefferson you know, woke up today and even John Adams uh, woke up today and saw what they saw today, you know, they would be writing another declaration of independence uh, and saying, you know, this is this is too oppressive. So uh, if you take a look at the surveillance state we have now, uh, you know, the, the how much we, we, we did civil asset forfeitures, you know, and how oppressive the laws are today, uh, you know, and how prevalent surveillance is today, uh, how, how how much government spending is, how high tax rates are, that we're printing as much money as we are, and the government has the discretion to do this, you know, I think they would be, uh, you know, have revulsions overseeing, and they would probably revolt over it. So I think, I think we have today a more tyrannical, and again, it's not about Trump, this is systemically, we have a more tyrannical government than then maybe the founding fathers confronted with when they made their claims to, uh, you know, King George at that point. In time. Yeah, I mean, this is why I call myself a libertarian, because, you know, just looking at and I'm only 25, but just looking at, you know, the last prior couple administrations, I mean, abuse of government and civil institutions is a bipartisan affair. When you look at the Republicans, when you look at the Democrats, as soon as they come into Washington, their first priority is usually, how do I get as many of my people into the key positions I need to use these institutions for my own benefit? I mean, I don't really see much of a difference between a Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And I mean, you've addressed so much. The one thing that has really bothered me is that, and I consider myself a very C-average American. I'm very happy that they didn't put my GPA on my uh, bachelor's degree. But, you know, all we have to do is look at just the last, you know, century at least. Look at almost every 
government, look at every country that instituted a system of fiat money, whether it's the Weimar Republic or Zimbabwe, and they always have the same outcome. We're going to print ourselves into prosperity. This is why I tell a lot of my friends who, um, you know, they, they went to public school and I was, you know, I had a very diverse education growing up. I was homeschooled. I was private schooled. I was public schooled. I saw all the good and bad ways to do it. But the one thing I saw was that for a lot of finance classes, what do they teach you about retirement? They say, save your way into retirement. No financial planner would ever say you could save your way into retirement. You can't do that these days. Oh, well, what do you do if you need money real fast? Oh, we'll just get a credit card. It's like, that that's not real money. You're agreeing to pay so much more for everything. I, I think the biggest threat to America is really ourselves. And a lot of it has to do with our historical literacy and our financial literacy. I completely agree with that. I mean, many people... You know, some people who I know who run for office that I stay in contact with or some members of Congress that I stay have some level of contact with, you know, I always try and remind them, you know, I I send them stuff that other people said, not what I said, you know. So a lot of what I do is repeat things that were written, you know, 200 years ago or 100 years ago, Uh, you know. So, you know, most of what I say is not original thought. You know, it's, it's a composite of things other people have said that I try and articulate a little bit differently, but, you know, basically, you know, very few of my ideas are are original in any sense. So I'm just trying to remind people of words that other people said a lot better than me, you know, a long time ago. So, and remind them of this, unfortunately, you know, I gave, just give you a I spoke at, when, when people started doing crypto conferences in the U.S., I spoke at a couple of them. And I would, and I would go to the audience and this was like three years ago, three years. And I would go to the audience and I said, you know, the Satoshi paper was written, you know, in the end of 2008, it was published. And I would ask them, this is like, like 2017, 2016, you know, how many of you have read the Satoshi white paper? And this is a crypto conference. And I can tell you less than 10% of the audience had read the Satoshi white paper. Sheesh. So I said, so I said this is the sense of what, to them, the Satoshi paper was ancient history. So it was, you know, eight, nine years ago at that point in time. And for them, that's already ancient history. It's too old for them to have any interest in. So that, that's, that's, what, that's what happens today is if, if it didn't happen 15 minutes ago, people think it's ancient and it's not worth knowing. So we have no interest in ancient wisdom. So we think wisdom began from, you know, from, what, from whatever somebody said 15 minutes ago. So 20 minutes ago or an hour ago. So to look back at history and really think about and learn from history, you know, people, we, 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 we don't have many people who are really, you know, you know I've asked a number of people from, from who, who run. I said, have you really read, have you really read, you know, the Constitution? I can tell you most of them never read the Constitution. I can tell you most of them have never read the Declaration of Independence. So we have people running for office, okay? Who put when you swear in office, you swear in office to putting your hand, you know, and you're swearing to uphold the Constitution. They're swearing to uphold the document that they've never read. Think about how absurd that is. How can you swear to uphold something you don't even know what it is that you're swearing to? So you already you've already told a lie. As soon as you enter office, you enter office based on the lie because you're swearing to uphold the law you don't know anything about. 
So it's very, very sad that, uh, you know, the, 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 the founding fathers, when they were thinking about what document to put the Constitution in, the first document they thought about, they first thought about having it written in Hebrew. And they thought about written in Hebrew is because the first written law is the Torah, the five books of Moses. That's the first written law. Um, and so they had so much respect for what it recommended. And what? Because these people, they knew Latin, they knew Greek, they knew Hebrew, you know, they knew multiple languages and they were reading texts in, they were reading ancient texts in their original language, okay? We don't even read any text. We don't read our own texts in our own language, you know, and they were reading all these ancient texts, you know, so, the, and they took these conversations seriously. If you look at the, if take a look at the debates to, you know, Madison's recollections of the date debates to the, you know, to the, to the convention, you know, in which the constitution created and look at the debates we have now over legislation. You know, there's, there's no, no it's comparison not between the quality of the debates they had over people who took ideas seriously to hear, you know, nobody takes ideas seriously anymore. It's like, okay, how does this sound to this interest group? So which interest group, which faction am I trying to appeal to with this statement? So, uh, you know, and, and, and Madison warned us about factionalism. So uh, these, 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 these documents, I have, this, I have this volume that was put together by the University of Chicago by, by Philip Curlin and a couple of others called the Founders Constitution. So it's, you know, it's several thousand pages because it's not just the Constitution. It has all the notes associated with each act and article of the Constitution and the debates surrounding how those words were finally chosen. So it's, it's an it's amazing document to be able to not only read the document, but to read the document in the context of the total conversation that went about that produced this as its final version. So yeah, it's, it's all, a pity. It should be required for everyone who goes to Congress should be required. You know, it, 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 University of Chicago has had a, I don't know if they still have it, had a program called the PEARL program. And PEARL stands for P for politics, E for economics, R for rhetoric, L for law, P-E-R-L, the Pearl program. And it really was based upon the, the, also the, 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 the advice of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin said that for, for us to survive and prosper as a republic, okay, every citizen should have working knowledge of politics, economics, rhetoric, and law. You know, we should be able to understand the infrastructure that governs our relationships, both political, legal, and business and commercial relationships and have a framework for how to debate ideas. And he said, the only way we could really survive as a Republic is if we were committed to having an education in, in those areas. So uh, I interloped when I was a student at Chicago in many of the programs in the Pearl program. I was not in the Pearl program. I studied finance and economics, but I interloped in the law school, I interloped in the Pearl program. I interloped in the physics area. So I interloped in the law school. So I was interloping in all these different areas of the university because fortunately I went to a school that allowed you to expand beyond the borders of your own major. So uh, to get, you know, really what was considered, you know, a broader, you know, liberal arts education. So you get a, uh, you know, a broader perspective. So you don't look at things so narrowly. So I think I think I think we've lost that sense of 
uh, of really valuing any sort of sense of, uh, you know, intellectual pursuits. So, and, 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 the, and, the, and the acquisition of wisdom. So, uh, because there's no return to it, you know, you don't get an audience, uh, you know, that way. So, because there's, because people don't view that there's any reward or compensation for it, you know, then why even put the effort into it? So for me, I've made my life, I've made my money in life as a trader, as an investor. So I, I, I've really never had to really interact with people. You know, I just, I've just figured out how to make my own money grow for me. And, uh, and so I can, I can pursue wisdom for its own pursuit. And I believe it helps me, helps make me a better trader because I, I, because of the perspective I bring to circumstances, you know, and I, and I find that the best traders are well-educated people who have read a lot and have a, you know, and have a deep perspective of things so that they can see things deeper than most people, than most people take a look at. Most people don't scratch much beyond the surface. So Fisher Black once said, um, you know, the father of option pricing theory, the year he gave his, uh, his presidential address to the American Finance Association, the title of his address was, was called Noise. And Fisher Black said the difference, to simplify it, he said basically the difference between economics and finance is economics, you know, when you do econometrics, you have an independent dependent variable and an epsilon term, and the epsilon term is just considered noise. He said in finance, the noise term is the most interesting because embedded in noise is information. So what you have to do is you have to look inside the noise and find information that's embedded in noise. So he said that's, all, that's where all the money is made in finance is not looking at the independent or dependent variables, is looking inside the noise and finding that needle in a haystack, finding that information that's embedded in noise, you know, what could be called signal extraction. So if you're really good at signal extraction, if you're good at information processing, you know, then you get rewarded in the marketplace if you're really good about information processing, and that's where the money is made. So for me, I've liked that game. You know, I like that game better than, better than dealing with people. I like the game of, competing in the marketplace and being able to every day measure my performance of did I do well or did I do poorly? And there's no subjective measure. There's the most objective measure in the world is that I make money or that I lose money. So very, very objective. So no need to ascribe any adjective to it at all, just the dollar <laughs> value. So, uh, you know, so, so, so I like that game. Uh, and you know, I enjoy it a lot. I, I have to tell you, conversations like this is why I love doing this show, because I tell people all the time, you know, I, I, I liked college. It was an interesting experience. But conversations like this are what I love, because it's been just a treat for me just to, you know, just sit back and listen to everything you've done. And I'm going to have to, you know, re-listen to this conversation again, because I'm going to go ahead and uh, check out all the notes and everything for, because we covered so many different areas. Um, sir, I've taken a good amount of your time today. I'm greatly appreciative of that. I'm going to keep bugging you more often because I'm going to have a thousand questions after this. But if anyone wants to go ahead and see some of your lectures or speeches online, how could they do so? I don't know because I don't really publish <laughs> them. So, uh, 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 gee, I guess, I guess, I'll hit uh, up YouTube and find some. I'll, I'll do yeah, that. I think, I think, I think, I think, I think I've never put any up. So, and in fact, I didn't even know until one day, 
One day I was, I, I, one day I was moderating, one day some person who moderated a, a panel that I was on, he, he, he asked to meet with me after the panel. So we had a conversation and he said, you know, do you know that you had a video on that more than a million people have looked at? No, I way. said, no, I had no idea because I never looked at my videos. I didn't even know there were any videos of me up on YouTube. So, uh, so I called all the people who, who I had spoken to and I said, if you have videos of me, please remove all of them. So I didn't want the videos up. So, uh, you know, some people said, well, sorry, you know, you agreed that when you spoke that we could do this. And maybe you didn't pay attention. I said, I guess I didn't pay attention. So I, I guess I can't deprive you of a right I've already agreed to. So that's my it's time bad. Time to start asking for some so, royalties. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but I do know that several of my videos and the, the videos that had been most watched no longer are available on YouTube. So not because I asked them to come down. I think, I think YouTube, and I know I had some videos because somebody told me this. They had some videos that, like a year or two ago, had a certain amount of views, and now they seem to have about ten percent of the number of views they had two years ago. So, data. Uh, yeah, so they're manipulating the data on how many people have looked at some of these videos. So, uh, so I don't really know because I don't look for my own videos. I, I don't, and, and I don't put any of them up. Uh, so I don't really know what videos exist. I don't know if they're good or not good. Uh, and, uh, um, and, uh, because I think, I think that my, my, my best talks have been in closed environments to smaller groups. So where there have been no recordings, uh, because I, they're, they're not like 15 minute speeches in front of long groups. They're more where I can talk a longer time and take questions. And I think I'm at my best when I'm taking questions and that's what I like the most. Is is Q and A, um, but you know, when, but but doing short speeches to large groups, uh, you know, really all I wanted to communicate at that point in time was to tell people to be careful of all the shit coins that were being issued. So uh, that's all I wanted to accomplish in those speeches is you know is, is beware of shit coins. So, uh, but you can check. I guess that's where people can find. Uh, you know, some of my, some of my stuff. I've written a few articles that are on Medium. So if people want to check Medium and check my name on Medium, I might have about five articles there that I, that I put up. Perfect. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to just absorb all the knowledge that you've gone ahead and dished out at us. Folks, I'm going to go ahead and have all the information in the show notes today. And uh, that's about it. You're listening to On the Run with Remsel W. Martinez of the We Are Libertarians Network. Have a good night. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.